Tonight's reading is in Haggai chapter 2. That can be found in the Blue Bibles on page 948. It's 948, Haggai chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Thank you very much, Ed. Um, do please keep your Bibles open if you had them there at Haggai 2. And we're going to pray as we come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have just sung, uh, Lord, we make that our prayer again, that you would speak to us until that day to, when your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you ever come across a project of some kind that you started but never finished? Maybe you pop your head into your garden shed or up the loft or you just look there on your bookcase and you just see the remnants of long abandoned projects. Maybe it's that bike you were going to do up but you never finished. The idea you had to get all your, your photos and put them into albums, but they're just there is a big pile still, or they're on the cloud somewhere, you don't really know where they are. Or the application form for the job that just never got done. Or maybe that, that book, you know which one it is, that's been on your shelf and it's had that bookmark in the same page for years. What made you give up on it? Was it one of these two things? Did you think to yourself at some point, this thing that I've started, it's not going to be as great as I thought it was going to be when I started it? That could be one thing that made you give up. A second thing could be, well, I've started this thing, but I don't think I can finish it. I'm not good enough to. Why did I ever start this in the first place? What about church? What makes you give up on church? Maybe not give up on church completely, but what might make you 
step back, take your foot off the pedal, stop coming along as much as you used to, stop serving as much as you used to, stop giving to church in various ways. What, for you, makes church go down on your priority list? Maybe we sometimes get discouraged about the state of our church. We long to belong to a, an alive, vibrant group of people really going places, but yet we look around sometimes and we think, this isn't very impressive. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly magnificent. It's maybe not like how it used to be in the good old days. Even on a good day, we might come to church and be really encouraged and think, yes, this, this is where I'm meant to be. This is brilliant. Isn't it wonderful to be in God's family? But then we say to somebody on Monday morning, how was your weekend? And they ask us, and we tell them about how we went to church at the weekend. And to be honest, they're pretty nonplussed. They're just not impressed by it at all. It seems like nothing to them. So when we get that reaction back, the temptation there is to, to give up, to give up on thinking high thoughts about the church, to give up on gospel work, to give up on building one another up in Christ, to give up on speaking about Christ to people who need to hear about him. Are there things that, given half the chance, we would give up on if we could at church, or people we'd give up on? Well, why should we carry on working on God's house? That's the mood of the people at this point in the book of Haggai. Last week, we saw the prophet Haggai delivering God's first message to God's people who had returned from exile. God was urging them to think carefully about their priorities. They were neglecting the building of God's house. They were all away fighting for parking spaces at Ikea when God's house just remained in ruins. But challenged by Haggai and the word of the Lord, they, they got on with the job. They were strengthened by God's presence. The people changed. They repented, they obeyed, and they set to work building God's house as their priority. But Haggai's second message from God, the one we're looking at tonight, it addresses a slightly different problem. See, the temptation is different here to chapter 1. In chapter 1, the temptation for the people was to, to not start on God's house, to just put it off for another day. But the temptation for them now that they had started is to give up. Why would they be tempted to give up? Because to them, the whole thing just looks like a pathetic non-starter. And so at this point, the Lord arranges an assembly of his people. He brings his second word to them through the prophet Haggai. He says to them in chapter 2, verse 3 there, "'Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory?' Now, quite a bit of time had passed since uh, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. It would be like me saying to you now, who of us is left who can remember what Banstead was like or can remember what the church on this site was like in the year 1947? Anyone around? Anyone remember it then? No, no. Well, in Haggai's day, there were... A few murmurings at the back from the people on the Zimmer frames, a few waving of walking sticks saying, yeah, I remember it. Well, Haggai says to them, how does it look to you now? Now, the old temple, Solomon's temple, was magnificent. It was glorious. 
You couldn't see any of the stone that was supporting the structure because it was all covered with gold and wood. Solomon, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time, built it with all the great resources in the world, the best materials. Well, as for this new project, this new building in Haggai's day, we read in the book of Ezra that people wept when they started laying the foundations. Israel had come a long way since then and not in a good direction. They had few resources. Jerusalem was now a a nowhere town in a vast Persian empire. They had no power, no money, no influence. They were just insignificant. And so here in chapter 2 of Haggai, the temple building project, it felt for them a bit like when a small child, maybe preschool or nursery age, brings you a bit of paper, and on it, there's sort of one big scribble. And their teacher has not only helpfully written their name on it, but they've also written underneath, it's a dog. (laughs) And, And so you say, oh, yes, I see it now. I can see it. Yes, it's got an eye and everything. Yes, I see it. Lovely dog, very good. Well, in the same way, these people's efforts at building the temple seemed like a poor reflection of what they knew God's house should be like. So end of verse 3, does it not seem to you like nothing? Isn't that what um, it's sometimes like when we talk to others about the Lord Jesus and about church and what we do? We long to invite people here, tell them about Uh, the difference Jesus can make to their lives. We also have this nagging sense that to them it's going to sound like nothing, insignificant. As we were seeing last week, the temple in Jerusalem was always designed to point forward to something greater. It foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in whom God made himself fully known and desired a relationship with his people. And so now, through faith in Jesus, all God's people, all believers in Jesus, are like living stones, the Bible describes us as, being built together, not into a physical house, but into a spiritual house. And so the building work we're called to do today as God's people is not physical, it is spiritual. God's glorious building project is now his church. It's through his church that he's going to display his glory to the nations, to the peoples around us. And so our spiritual building project is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ until a day when a great number of followers of Jesus that nobody can count will come from all nations into God's glorious kingdom. Sounds great, doesn't it? But if we're struggling with that mission, if we're finding it hard, then our passage provides us some encouragement. As it says there, why should we keep on working on God's house? Why should we keep going with gospel work? Why should we persevere in this, even despite present appearances? Two reasons. God promises to make his workers strong, and he promises to make his house glorious. Let's look at the first of those from verses 4 to 5. First of all, here we see that God promises to make his workers strong. So God assembles before him the, the usual suspects, as we've seen in the book of Haggai so far, Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and all the people. 
And the encouragement to be strong is delivered to all these people, each in turn there. Their names are repeated in verse 4. They're all exhorted to be strong and work. See, this is a job for all God's people together. There is work for all God's people to do. They may not all do the same bit, but they are to be united in the task. And they all need God's empowering presence. And it's just that that they're assured of at the end of verse 4 there. So he says, I am with you. And verse 5 as well, my spirit remains among you. So for those who are worried that they just cannot carry on, that it's just too much to keep giving themselves to building God's house, God says to them, God says to you if that's you, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. And amidst this building project, for a people who have been brought low, we're provided with some amazing hints, some wonderful reminders in these verses of how God is in the business of doing incredible things out of things that are seemingly very little, very insignificant. In fact, he's got a history of doing just that kind of thing with his people Israel in the Old Testament. And so we get a couple of reminders of that in our passage. There's one in verse 5 that's easy to spot. The Lord says, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So we've got a reminder there of how God rescued his people from Egypt. And if they looked on the calendar as well, they would have gotten another reminder. This one's harder for us to spot, unless you know your Jewish calendar very well. But the 21st day of the seventh month, we read that in verse 1 there, That was, in fact, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a festival in which Israel moved out of their own houses. They went to live in very fragile tents to remind one another of how they lived that way once upon a time for 40 years when God took them out of slavery. It was a reminder for them that Egypt, their enemy, was behind them, that God dwelt among them that however flimsy their own houses were, they were being kept safe by the Lord their God. And so here in Haggai's day, we get a twofold reminder of who these people are and who their God is and what he has done for them. Yes, they may have wept as they put this flimsy temple together. They didn't have much resource. But yet this is a God who brought his people out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And on their way out, they plundered their, their captors. They, they took some stuff from the Egyptians. God provided all they needed for them to be his people. They took some of their, their captors' wealth with them. God increased their number. He provided them with land and blessing. And throughout those days, he, he would say to his people, Be strong. Be strong, the leaders. Be strong, Moses. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, the people. For I am with you. I'll be at work for you and through you. By the way, if you're here with us tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you're very welcome indeed. It's great to see you. But let me ask you as well, who would you say, if I had to ask you, who is your, your ultimate faith in in life? How would you answer that? Who are you putting your faith in? Might it be a person or a system of beliefs or 
just yourself and what you think you can do in this world, or something else. Christians aren't the only people with faith. I think we all exercise faith in one thing or another. Where are you putting yours? Well, wherever it is, let me ask you, is that thing that you're trusting in, is that thing that you're believing in, is that thing really, really capable of bringing you ultimate goodness, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate peace, ultimate purpose, ultimate rescue? Are you putting your faith for those things in something that was never meant to provide those things, that can't, that doesn't have a track record of doing those things for people? Well, here's the thing. Here's what Haggai's saying by all this reminders about Egypt. The God of the Bible has a track record of rescuing people who put their faith in him, of doing it time and time again, showing his grace, showing his mercy, meeting people at their deepest need of rescue when they badly need his forgiveness, when they need escaping from some judgment. God is able to deliver people from such situations. If your faith is not in this God and his son, Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to ask yourself why, why not? And we'd love to help you explore more why God and his son, Jesus, are worth putting your whole life in uh, by faith into their hands. So God rescued his people during the Exodus. His plan was that he might dwell among them and that through him dwelling among them, they might be a light to the nations. And for us, God's people today, the Lord Jesus has promised that he will build his church. He even says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so today, as God's new covenant people, we too can, to, can look back to what God has done for us. Just like Israel could look back to Egypt, we can look back to the cross, Christ's work there, his once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. We can remember these great things that God has done to rescue us, like we do as we did this morning when we took bread and wine to remember and proclaim these truths. God has granted us peace with himself in Jesus, and, and he's made us into a community that displays this, this wonderful peace that we have between us and God and between us and one another. As it says there in, in verse 9, this is what God promised he would do in his house. In this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord. We're also reminded about how Jesus taught about his own kingdom. Jesus, when he walked this earth, said that his kingdom would, would look insignificant. It would start very small. It would be quite inconspicuous, the beginnings of it wouldn't be sort of earth-shattering, it wouldn't look like much, but one day it would be seen to be what it truly is, the greatest of all kingdoms. And so filled with God's presence, filled with his spirit, we, his people, can be strengthened. Yes, we feel weak and uh, overwhelmed a lot of the time, but for the for the work of making disciples, for God's purpose for his church, God will supply all that we need. 
the strength to do that. And so, as it says at the end of verse 5, do not fear. We needn't be afraid. As we think of the the challenge of living as Christians today and serving God and, and investing in his church family, I wonder what fears bubble up inside you, what anxieties come to the surface. Maybe for you it's just the, the fact that things don't feel as stable as they used to or as significant as they used to. Maybe you remember times where our, our nation had more of a, a turning and attentiveness to God and his word where we saw great numbers of people come to Christ in the last century through the work of great evangelists. And now we look out and we, we worry if the gospel is making any impact at all. And we look around our own lives and we have challenges, frustrated plans, struggles, indifference as we try and share this message. If we feel any of those things, then this same encouragement from Haggai is for us. The Lord says, be strong. I am with you. My spirit remains among you. And let's give ourselves to this work. Because we have a promise, just like verse 4. Jesus says, before he ascended to heaven, I am with you always. to the very end of the age. So we can keep going in building God's house because God promises to make his workers strong. And then secondly, because God promises to make his house glorious. He promises to make his house glorious. Now in these last four verses, that last paragraph there, there's quite a lot going on. There's stuff about shaking. There's something about being filled with glory. There's something called the desire of all nations. There's a bit about silver and gold and how this new house is somehow going to have greater glory than the old house. How's that possible? Well, what are these verses saying, and where do we fit in? I'm going to press fast forward at this point, because I think the easiest way of tackling what these verses mean to us is to go right to the end of the story, right to the end of what the Bible reveals about this new house that God is building. Because Haggai's prediction goes way beyond that physical building there that, as we've already picked up, wasn't as glorious as Solomon's and actually was pretty much flattened in AD 70. So what's it pointing forward to? What's all this shaking about? So we've got on the screen there some verses from Revelation chapter 21. Let's start at the very end. And as we heard um, Lisa point us to earlier, This is John's vision of of the new Jerusalem. He writes, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. See this glorious new Jerusalem here. It's going to be established by God. And he's going to bring it in following the time where he fully and finally shakes the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. So come with me to one more pit stop on our Bible journey. 
Because the writer to the Hebrews speaks of this shaking uh, in chapter 12, again on the screen there. You'll notice how the writer quotes from our passage in Haggai. There's a, there's a verse there that we'll have heard just now in our reading. Hebrews 12, starting from verse 26. At that time, he's speaking of Israel at Mount Sinai, his voice, that's God's voice, shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So these verses in Haggai, in the light of the New Testament, they're pointing us forward to a time when God will bring all things to conclusion. There will be a final judgment, a final shaking, a final shakedown. But what will not be shaken is God's own kingdom. On that day, God's own kingdom will fully arrive in all its glorious splendor, the new creation. If we had time to read more of Hebrews 12, we could read about how Christians today, we've begun to participate in this glorious kingdom. We've begun to share in something that is unshakable, an unshakable mountain, temple, kingdom. We've begun now to share in that as God's church. It's as if the the future glorious house that Haggai was pointing towards has somehow broken into the present in, in Jesus and through Jesus in his church as well. As God sends his spirit, God's people now become part of this glorious temple that is just extending across this world. It's not tied to a particular location, but it's found among all those who accept and believe the good news about Jesus. And when this Jesus returns a final time, God will make all things new and he will dwell perfectly and gloriously with his people forever. But even now, even Right now in Christchurch Banstead, the house that God is building has a greater glory than even Solomon's temple. Has a greater worth, a greater value. And we can see that today if we are willing to look for it. See, every single bit of the life of a healthy church is incredibly valuable. In the great shakedown, it will be these things that we're about as Christ church that that matter, that endure, that are of eternal significance. So the world will tell us that certain things are, are really valuable and they're not going to be shaken by anything and we should put our faith and trust in them. But one day there will be a shaking and we'll discover what is of eternal value and it will be a big surprise to many. The world will point and say, these things, this person over here, they're very significant. This is how to be significant. Be like them, and and you'll be known. You'll be significant. 
But all that stuff you do at church on, on a Sunday, that, that Christian stuff, that's not significant. It's not worth anything. Why would you invest in that? But one day there will be a shaking. And the sheer glory of ordinary Christian faithfulness will be seen for what it is. It will endure the shaking. Ordinary Christian faithfulness is eternally significant. So showing up at church week by week, committing to one another to help one another grow as followers of Jesus, reading the Bible with someone, praying with someone, encouraging someone, providing practical help, helping to train someone, teaching people how to follow Jesus, putting the chairs out and making the cups of tea so that all that other stuff can work well, doing all that because you love Jesus and you want others to hear about him and and trust him and become like him. This is all glorious work. It's not just the big high street events and open weeks. It's all glorious. Every bit of the life of a healthy local church, encouraging one another on until that day. This gives us great boldness to share Jesus at Christmas time as well. Yes, we might get some indifferent reactions, but we do not lose heart because Jesus is who it's all about. Jesus is where the action is. If we want people to endure the terrible judgment that's to come in the big shakedown, We need to present Jesus to them so that God, by his grace, would open their hearts and they might be saved. So let's keep going with this. It's it's worth it. Our, Our life and witness together as church is worth sacrifice, giving up of our our time and our resources and our talents. Because eventually, as verse 7 says, what is desired of all nations will be brought into God's house. It's a bit of a tricky verse, but I think it's referring to the same thing as the silver and the gold in verse 8 there. So in other words, on, on that day, on that last day, all the wealth of the world will find its way back to its rightful owner, God himself, all for his glory. All we have comes from him, it belongs to him, One day it will all be his again, for his glory. So it makes sense for us now to invest what he has given us into this glorious future. And we can do so knowing that God has guaranteed to complete this building project himself. It doesn't depend on our works. God wants us to share in it. He exhorts us to share in it, to keep building. But it's him who guarantees the completion Did you notice how often, as Ed read it there, that we hear the words, declares the Lord in our short passage, or declares the Lord Almighty? I think it's seven times in nine verses. It's as if the Lord is not just signing his name at the bottom of the building plans. It's like he's putting his initials against every detail along the way. He will do it. He has declared that he will do it. So don't believe the lie that church isn't up to much. Because what seems like insignificant Christian faithfulness today will be the focus of glorious splendor in the end. Let's not make 
gospel ministry something we start but give up on. Let's persevere in it. We have a glorious future like every faithful church in this world. We are about a work that is eternally significant. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us serve God with reverence and awe. He is making his workers strong and he is making his house of such great glory that he himself, the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb Jesus Christ will dwell there forever and ever with his people. So let's keep going to that day. Let's pray. Lord God, please equip us afresh by your Spirit to serve you, to build your church, to hold out the good news about Jesus to others. Lord, this week in the ordinary things of life, help us to see how glorious this work truly is. We ask for your strength and help until your church is fully built and the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.